Thank you so much for knowing that we need a reset, that we need a fresh start, that we need new life, God. Thank you for making it something that all of us have access to. Jesus, thank you specifically for today, a day where we get to kind of step back from the crazy cycle of our lives, and we just get to to sit and to be with each other and to be with you and to be refreshed, to be renewed, to be reset, God. As we take a look at what your freedom means for us, God, we just ask that you would pour it out, that we would not reject it, that we would not push it away, but that we would just receive your freedom for us, that we would receive your reset. God, as we do, we take a moment to just be silent, to prepare ourselves to hear what it is you have to say to us this morning. us, God, today. We love you so much. Amen. All right, so I don't know if any of you have ever had the chance uh, to take a look at, like, the comprehensive list of all official phobias. Show of hands quick. Has anyone ever taken a look at that list? No. Good. Go do it. If you're ever, like, sitting bored, want a chance to laugh, there are some ridiculous phobias out there. Um, As I was kind of preparing for this message, I found a few um, that made me chuckle. Uh, And so what we're going to do is we're going to put a a phobia up on the screen, and just with whoever you're with, just kind of try to maybe guess what it is. I'll give you some context clues for a second, and then I'm going to reveal it right away. So it's just just for fun, just for some chuckles. Uh, The first one we have, I'm going to mess up how to pronounce some of these, but the first one we have is Paganophobia, I believe. And uh, if you have this, you might be a little nervous with me up on the stage. And that's not because it's the fear of extremely good-looking men. But it's, um, it's the fear of beards. Uh, Pagano, yes, people apparently are horrified of beards, some people. Um, the next one we have is xemophobia. And uh, xemophobia, this one really, really threw me for a loop. Uh, some of you guys, maybe like, I grew up going to the San Diego Zoo a lot, and they had naked mole rats there, and that's funny. Um, but xemophobia, it's the fear of the great mole rat. Like, not just any mole rat, but apparently there's some great mole rat out there, and people are freaked out by it. I think if I knew of the great mole rat, I would also have xemophobia. Uh, another one that kind of threw me for a loop is plutophobia. And uh, unlike the name kind of indicates, it is not the fear of uh, Mickey's canine friend, um, but it is, it is a fear that I have never met anyone who has it, at least in Orange County. It is the fear of wealth, right? Like, <laughs> well, who, who? No, don't give me a raise, please. I can't make any more money, right? Like, that's, that's bizarre, but uh, pay, people apparently have it. Uh, the next one is pretty cruel, and I'm definitely not going to pronounce this one right, but I will give you my best attempt. It is hippopotamonstrous sesquidepideliophobia. Uh, any guesses? It's the fear of long words. That's just, that's mean. That is cruel. It, it makes me think, I don't know if any of you guys have ever paid attention to this, but like lisp, stutter, and dyslexia are all things that people who have those things would have trouble saying or reading. And like this, oh, it's just mean. Just mean. Uh, you might maybe have some friends or some family that have uh, theophobia or homilophobia, and they will not come to church because that is the fear of religion or the fear of sermons. I like that there is an explicit difference between, I'm okay with religion, but uh, don't give me a sermon. I, don't, I can't have anything to do with that. Uh, and then the last one we're going to kind of laugh at today is some of you guys might be squirming in your seats this morning right now. Uh, if you have phobophobias, 
which this one's kind of the easiest one, but the, the fear of phobias. You are just afraid of being afraid. Like that one actually seems a little bit legitimate. Um, but anyway, so look it up the list of phobias. They are very funny. But these ones seem kind of silly, unless you suffer from any of these phobias, right? They're kind of laughable, funny. Um, but there are some real ones. There are some ones that are more common to humanity that we kind of get a little bit more. For me personally, the three that I suffer most from are acrophobia, arachnophobia, and claustrophobia, right? The fear of heights, the fear of spiders, and the fear of confined spaces. And I have, um, at one point in my life, I had two of these converge simultaneously for what made for one of the scariest moments of my life. Uh, it was, it was back, I was probably 18 or so, and I was in my first car. My, gran my grandpa gave me my first car for free to learn in. It was a 95 Chevy Blazer. This thing was incredible. It was white. It was built like a tank. I had gotten in a few fender benders, and you could never tell on my car. Like, the other car would be demolished, and mine was just perfectly fine. Um, but, but the car came with some quirks. It had 250,000 miles on it. And, and with that came some, some natural, you know, flavor with it. So uh, one of those things is every time I would accelerate, the gas gauge would just go all the way to empty. And when I brake, it would go all the way to full. And so you just, you always kind of had to take the average to guess how much gas you actually had. Uh, the air conditioning didn't work, so that was always fun in summer. Uh, and then one of the, the last quirks was the power windows just never seemed to want to behave. Sometimes they would work fine, and then when you needed it most, it would just get stuck. And so you, you know, you're stuck in the rain with a window down, and you're just getting soaked. So anyway, I'm coming home one night, and I, I park in front of my parents' house, and I'm rolling up my windows, and passenger window freezes about two inches from the top. I'm like, oh, well, take all the valuable stuff out. We live in Mission Viejo, nothing to really worry about. So clear it all out, go in, go to bed, no problem. Come back out the next morning to go to work, hop in the car, start it up, warm up the car, everything's good. It was a little like... Uh, condensation-y that morning, you know, there's some dew everywhere, so it got inside the car, so I'm kind of wiping that out. Car warms up, start going, and I had about a, I don't know, 10-minute commute to work, because lived right by Mission Viejo High School, commuted to right by the Irvine Spectrum, and so I'm about two minutes into that commute when I hit a red light. Sitting at the red light, drinking my coffee, messing with the radio, doing what I'm doing, when all of a sudden, a spider begins to drop down between me and the steering wheel. And this is like not daddy long leg, this is like jawbreaker size, like ugly colors, yellows, reds, and blacks, like it was straight out of a horror movie. It begins to drop down right in between me and the steering wheel. So my, brave, my breath starts kind of racing, my heart's speeding up, my palms are getting sweaty, my mind's trying to like think of things to how, to how to get out of this situation. When all of a sudden my time frame to make a decision automatically disappears because the light turns green. But I know what happens if I start accelerating, so there's no way I'm giving in to that, right? So I'm just sitting there, cars are beginning to honk, and I'm, my, my insecurity of, of people's opinion of me kind of begins to take over my arachnophobia, so I'm like, fine. I start just like barely inching forward, and as I inch forward, this thing swings back towards my face. I'm just, I'm like pressing myself as hard as I can into the back of my chair, and now my arachnophobia is, is converging with my claustrophobia because the inside of a 95 blazer has never felt so small as when you're pressed between the back of your seat and a spider in front of your face. And luckily, as this thing is inching towards me, I notice out of the corner of my eye, I notice a piece of paper behind, like a just piece of trash behind the passenger seat. And so I simultaneously, I'm not sure how I did it, like roll down my window, reach for the paper, come back, knock the spider out the window, roll back up, Boom! Disaster averted, right? Like, I felt so accomplished from that point forward. Nothing could take me down that day. I swear, like, the Eye of Tiger came on the radio after that. I was like, da -da -da -da, da -da -da -da. You know, like, I, I was just on top of the world. 
And the whole reason I tell you that story is, is some of you guys, you might understand claustrophobia you know, in a literal sense. The fear, I mean, it's described as the fear of confined spaces. But if we really analyze what it's all about, it's the fear of not having the freedom to kind of move about as you normally would want to do. And so some of us, we have claustrophobia in a literal sense. But I think all of us can identify with that, that, lo that loss of freedom to move about and to do what we want to do on a larger level, on a more conceptual level, right? Because all of us, we have these dreams, these aspirations, these passions that we are about. And all of us fear losing the ability to pursue those things, to have the freedom to get after those things the way that we want to. And really, these things that we long for, these things that we desire, they can be kind of boiled down to two main categories. And these aren't official names for them, but I, I call them uh, freedom of agency and freedom of morality, right? And so freedom of agency says that we want to be able to have authority over our own life. We want to be able to set our own rules, set our own guidelines, uh, or we at least want to be able to choose who has authority in our life, right? We want to be able to choose our employer. We want to be able to choose our president, our, our other governing forces. So that's, that's freedom of agency. And then freedom of morality says that we all long for the ability to do what it is we want to do, right? We all have these things that we like or don't like, and we want to be able to say, yeah, I want to do that because I want to do that, and that's okay for me to do. Or, no, that's a bad thing to do, so we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't do that, right? And it's the freedom of morality, the freedom to choose what is right and what is wrong. And these longings for these freedoms, they're nothing new, right? They're, they're, not, they're not new to um, the 21st century. They're not new to America. They're not specific to us. They've, they've actually been an, an age-long longing in us. And so, and, and Jesus knew that, and so uh, we're going to jump into a story where Jesus is kind of having a conversation with some people about freedom. And he's going back and forth specifically to begin with with the Pharisees, right? These were the religious superstars of the day. Everyone looked at them as the people who were closest to God. They knew all the rules and the regulations, and they were very good at following those rules and regulations. But Jesus knew that they were kind of missing something. Jesus knew that as good as they were at following rules, they were kind of missing the point of, of the relationship. They were missing the, the power of, of Jesus. And Jesus is trying to tell them, look, you have your rules and your regulations, but those aren't going to give you the freedom that you're longing for. Only I can give you that. So Jesus is having this conversation, and then he pauses talking to them, and he kind of turns to another group in the crowd. And this is a group of people who who kind of had probably been burned by the rules and the regulations, and they had started to follow Jesus. They liked the things he was talking about, the things he was doing. And so they had kind of started to get behind him. And so Jesus says this to them. We're starting in John 8, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? So pause there. The response is kind of funny here, right? So Jesus says, look, my truth is the thing that's going to give you freedom. And these people say, we're, we're descendants of Abraham. We've never been slaves. But they're conveniently forgetting the fact that since their inception as a people, they've been slaves to Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia. And Greece, and even now, as they're saying, we have never been slaves to anyone, they are currently living under oppression of the Roman Empire. 
They're being forced to pay taxes. They're being forced to follow certain laws. They're being forced to have Roman soldiers in their towns who are able to force them to carry their shields and armor and stuff for up to a mile at a time. And yet, in all sincerity, they stand before Jesus and they say, we're not slaves. We've never been slaves to anyone. It kind of reminds me... um, of kids growing up, and I'm sure most of you have observed this in one sense or another, whether your own kids or someone else's kids, but uh, kids grow up and they they begin to feel this sense of independence and they kind of learn these phrases, phrases that say, uh, you're not the boss of me, I can do what I want, or like my favorite when I was in like sixth grade, it's a free country, right, you know, like, and and the, the kids have a limited perception of what their independence means in terms of all the other forces that are still governing their lives. But kids aren't the only ones who have this right. I've also seen it happen with adults. I've, um, I've been present and overheard and been part of conversations with church leaders uh, who, are, who are choosing to live with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or they're choosing um, to get a divorce, or they're, they're making some other decision with wide-reaching implications. And someone has a conversation with them saying, hey, you know, let's talk this through, let's think this through. And a common response that I've often heard is we're grown-ups. We know what we're doing. We have the freedom to be able to make this decision for ourselves. Sometimes people even use the God cop out, right? God's, God's forgiven us, can't you? And so there's this, there's this kind of sense in Jesus' crowd, in children, and even in modern adults, where we believe that because we aren't literally anyone else's slave, that we live in a free country or because we're grown-ups or because God forgives us, that that means we have freedom to live and to do anything we please. But Jesus is framing freedom a little differently. right? Because we believe that freedom means we have the authority to do what we want when we want and for it to be okay. But Jesus says this, Next to the crowd in his conversation, he says, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. In other words, sure, you might not be literally a slave to a person or to a country, but we are all slaves to our to our desires, to our compulsions, to our our whims, to our patterns that hurt ourselves or hurt the people around us. Paul says it a different way in his his letter to the church of Corinth. He says this, just because something is technically legal doesn't mean that it's spiritually appropriate. If I went around doing whatever I thought I could get by with, I'd be a slave to my whims. This is an idea that's super countercultural in our world today. We live in a world that says everyone kind of gets to decide their their own morals, their own values, their own truth. There is no great truth. There is just what's right for you and what's right for me. And so we're bombarded with this message that tells us we get to craft what is right and what is wrong. But what Paul is saying is, no, if you indulge your every desire, your every impulse, your every whim, you'll, you might feel like you're free, but you're actually being, you're being mastered by your desires rather than letting love and logic drive your decisions, drive your life. Peter affirms this also in uh, one of his letters within the Bible, and he's quoting it as if people would have heard this before, but he says, people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. People are slaves to whatever has mastered them. And so Jesus and Paul and Peter are proposing this question. What has mastered you? 
What are we slaves to? What area in our life do we need God's freedom? And for some of you here, that answer comes right to mind. You don't even need to think about it. You know exactly what it is as soon as that question gets asked. You're like, ah, this is what's been continually controlling me and I can't break free from it. I need God. But for a lot of us, the answer might be a little more subtle. Because like the crowd that Jesus is talking to, a lot of our lives aren't necessarily wrought with some super obvious bondage. We look at our lives and we say, no, I'm not, I'm not a slave to anything. I choose this. I, choose, I get to choose what I do and where I spend my time and what I prioritize. But the reality is, is sin isn't always just this big, ugly monster that jumps in and destroys our life. Sometimes it is. But a lot of times, sin is most efficient through the subtle things in our life, right? Evil is most able to derail us, not with some big, shocking, ugly event, but with a slow wandering in a direction that's just slightly off from the path of freedom that God has for us. A lot of times we think of the word sin, it's kind of like this three-letter word that we all try to avoid because it's got some ugly connotations. But in reality, Jesus said all of his plans for our life can be boiled down to two things. Love God with all that you are and love the people around you like you love yourself. And so sin can most aptly be defined as any behavior, any thought, any pattern that keeps us from doing those things. As subtle or as obvious as it might be. And so these these subtle things begin to crop up in our life and oftentimes we try to balance them or justify them or make room for them or ignore them. Sometimes we try to say, I can still have this in my life and follow Jesus. But Jesus actually comes down pretty harshly against this this trying to balance things. Uh, In the book of Matthew, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And clearly Jesus is speaking directly about money here because I think he understands that that's often one of the the biggest subtle forces in our lives that kind of is able to take control of us and master us and steer us away from him. But really we can fill in this blank with a lot of things in our life. You cannot serve both God and money. We cannot serve both God and our sexual desires. We cannot serve both God and our addiction. We cannot serve both God and people's opinions of us. We cannot serve both God and success. We cannot serve both God and our comfort or our convenience. And yet, though we know that this is true, most of us hold this tension of wanting those things and wanting Jesus, the internal struggle of things fighting for our focus, for our attention, for our priority, our energy, our freedom. And Paul, the guy who wrote the majority of the New Testament, he beautifully captures this, this picture of this struggle. And, and Doug read this last week, but I still so think it is worth revisiting. He says in Romans 7, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, 
You guys still following along? It is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So Paul is proclaiming, I know, I know the path I want to be walking down. I know where that road takes me, and I know what it takes to get there. But for some reason, I keep going back down this other road. This road filled with behaviors that hurt me and hurt God and hurt the people around me. I can't help but continue to go back to those things. In my own life, I've seen no better picture of this internal struggle than through the story of addiction. For those of you guys familiar with my story, you know that growing up, my dad has been a recovering alcoholic and addict uh, my entire life. And so there have been seasons where he's been present and he's been sober and he's been an incredible father. And then there have been times where he will relapse and he will be absent for various lengths of time. And in both of those seasons, I've had the ability to have a conversation with him. A conversation where he shares his heart of how much he hates his addiction, how much he hates substances, how much he longs to be with his wife, to be with his kids, to love us and be present with us and to provide for us. And I've seen the honesty in his eyes and I've heard the pain in his voice as he said these things to me. And yet I've watched time and time again as his addiction has overtaken his heart and has robbed him back to the things he doesn't want to do and has robbed him from the things he wants to do, from the things he loves, his family, his passions, his God. And luckily we have been blessed enough to see every time he relapses that he fights and claws his way back to us. And currently we are so blessed to have him being an incredible dad and caretaker for my mom as she fights her cancer. But still, in the midst of that, in the midst of the great season we are in, I still know that that struggle and that tension lies beneath the surface. And even though addiction might be the clearest, most obvious picture of this, I know that to some degree or another, that same tension, that same struggle lies within all of us. After talking about the struggle, Paul kind of concludes with a statement that almost sounds like hopelessness. And he says this in Romans 7, 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And I think a lot of us can resonate with this feeling. This feeling of what hope is there? I, I want to do these things and I just keep going back to the other things. I keep being governed by these other things. But Paul doesn't stay there. In fact, in the immediate following sentence, Paul answers his own question. So he cries out saying, who's going to rescue me from this struggle, from this hopelessness? And then he answers himself, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul's initial response to this hopelessness, to this, to this struggle, to this tension is, God, thank you. It might be messy, it might be painful, but I already have freedom through Jesus, thanks to you. And he kind of continues talking about this freedom that he has through Jesus in the next chapter of his letter. Romans 8 verse 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. 
Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, Jesus, we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is just another word for father. But Paul is recognizing in this passage, he's saying, our slavery, our slavery to these behaviors, these patterns that hurt us and hurt the people around us, they're rooted in fear. But God's spirit is giving us a reset. He's giving us freedom away from that fear. He's giving us freedom away from condemnation. Freedom, a reset out of of death, out of sin. And he's giving us life. He's giving us life and he's giving us adoption into God's family. And Jesus continues this theme in his conversation with the crowd, jumping back to John 8. In verses 35 and 36, he says, Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So not only is God's son, Jesus, setting us free, as he says here, but as Paul says, we are being adopted as children ourselves into God's family with all of the freedom that that entails. Freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from condemnation, freedom from shame, freedom from guilt, freedom from fear, freedom from being mastered by our sins. And that adoption is something that no one and nothing can take away from us. But how do we, how do we capitalize? How do we make the most of that freedom? How do we avoid or at least minimize that cycle that Paul is talking about of of knowing the freedom that we have in Jesus and yet continuing to go back to those things that hurt us and hurt God and hurt the people around us? I think a lot of times the church kind of just stops in its footsteps there saying, Jesus is the answer. My hope today is to maybe say, yes, Jesus is the answer, but how do we practically, practically realize that in our own lives? So a few, few things that I want to, us to do as a community this morning. The first is we have to name the thing that masters us. Before you leave here this morning, be able to identify. And chances are there is more than one thing. But name the one thing at least that sits at the top of that list that you keep going back to that's holding you back from being able to fully love God, fully loving others, fully loving yourself. And again, for some of you, this will be easy. You already know. It comes right to your mind. You know what it is, and you're saying, yes, God, I need that freedom. And for others of you, it's something more subtle in your life. It's something beneath the surface, maybe something that you've been ignoring or justifying or making room for. I know for me, it is, it is something more subtle. For me, there are obviously more than one thing, but the, the main thing I think that lies beneath everything that, that I kind of am tempted to be mastered by is people's opinions of me. And it's subtle because I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good high school pastor, a good employee, a good friend, a good son, a good brother. I want to be good in all of my roles, and I want people to see how good I am in all of those roles. And I think God wants that for me, which is how I'm easily able to to justify it sometimes. But where I allow it to master me is sometimes I know what God is calling me to do, and it's something bold and courageous, and it's something outside the box. And I know that if I go there, it's going to stir the pot. 
Not everyone will be on board. The people whose opinions I, I let matter to me, I'm going to be cognizant of those. And I have to be willing to say, this is what God is calling me to. And often, I'm tempted to be more mastered by people's opinions of me than mastered by the convictions and the passions that God has given me. And so I hold that tension, that constant battle of saying, who am I letting drive my decisions? Who am I letting drive my thoughts, my actions? God's through his convictions and passions that he's given me, or people around me, even the good people who care about me. And it's those kinds of subtle things that, that sometimes lay beneath the surface that we're not able to identify. So what is it? Name the thing that has mastered you this morning, that is mastering you. And once we've been able to give it a name, we have to be able to acknowledge that we do not have the freedom from it through our own power. And if you guys are familiar with a 12-step program, this, you've heard this before, but the reality is the concept is directly from God. Because as long as we're able to convince ourselves that any level of our own hard work or any level of our own determination or any level of our own cleverness will get us free of this thing, we're going to continue to be stuck in that same cycle. And so we have to be willing to say, I can't do it. God, I need you. And when we reach that place of complete and utter dependence on God for freedom is when we're able to finally begin to step into it and to not carry the weight on our own shoulders, but to hand it over to Jesus. And once we've been able to give the thing a name and once we've been able to acknowledge our own powerlessness in that area, the third thing we have to do to realize God's freedom in our life is we have, to, we have to take advantage of the resources that God has given us to experience his freedom. Because once we realize that we are dependent on God and God alone, we can begin to lean into the things he puts into our life to experience that freedom. Because God doesn't just say, hey, look, I sent my son, he died, he rose again, you're good to go. Because that stuff is true. But God still continues every day to give us resources to take advantage of, to begin to experience that freedom new every single day. The first resource, there's, there's plenty, but we're going to be taking a look at three specifically today. The first one is thankfulness. If we look back again at Paul's initial response to the struggle to his hopeless despair, he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's initial response is gratitude because Paul understands that gratefulness, a grateful heart, is the antidote to being enslaved by the things of this world. Because for some reason, when we're focusing on the things that we have and the things that we're grateful for, material or immaterial, we're less focused on the things we lack. And when we're not focused on those things, they can't control us. They can't empower us. And so when we focus on being grateful, we experience just in that alone some freedom from the things that typically master us. And so in a little bit, the band is going to come up and they're going to sing some songs. And I want us to be a people who sing out gratitude to God in the midst of pain, in the midst of messy, in the midst of chaos and craziness and struggle and tension. Let us be people who say, thank you, God, for the things I do have. Because that is the first step to experiencing the fullness of God's freedom. The second resource that we should be leaning into is the people that God has placed in our lives. God never crafted us to do life or to do faith 
in isolation, to do life or faith alone. God instituted the church, this community of people, as people to do life together, to to cry together during the hard times and to laugh and celebrate together during the good times. And it can be hard to find that kind of intimate community alone here on Sunday mornings. If you're just showing up and then leaving, it can be hard to find that kind of community. So I want to encourage you guys on an ongoing basis, if you haven't yet done Rooted, Jump into Rooted. It's 10 weeks of just jumping into to questions with people who want to do life together. And it's a way to begin to initiate and build that community. And if you've already done Rooted, jump into a life group. Be part of a smaller group of people who are willing to bear each other's stuff, to laugh and to cry together. And if you're already part of a life group, just start having these conversations. Be willing to be honest and be vulnerable and be open and say, hey, here is the stuff in my life that's holding me back from fully loving God or fully loving my family or fully loving my friends or even fully loving myself. Here's how I need you guys to help me. And then once you're able to do that, you're able to do that then for them. Say, hey, where where in your life do you need freedom? How can I be there for you? Because the reality is, is when we walk together through this journey, through the ups and the downs, that the fullness of God's beauty and the fullness of God's freedom is manifested. And then the, last, the third and last thing, resource that I want to talk about this morning is prayer. And prayer kind of seems like this ambiguous thing at, at times, but, but the reality is, is prayer is one of the most powerful things we have available to us. Whether we are praying alone or we are praying in a group, God is giving us direct access to communicate with him and talk to him and to counteract the evil and the pain and the mess of this world. But even more, in my opinion, even more profound, more beautiful, more moving than praying ourselves to God is having the freedom to come up to someone who may or may not have any idea who you are or what your story is and to say, hey, Here's where I need freedom. Will you go before God on my behalf and carry that to him? There is something so incredible about that experience. If you have come forward for prayer before, you've been able to experience that. But maybe you've never come up for prayer before. Maybe you haven't been able to identify a need for prayer. Maybe it's been some shame or guilt holding you back or fear. But I want to, this morning, as the band plays and as we sing out with praise and gratefulness, I want every single person in a seat to come forward. Even if you're having trouble naming that thing, even if you're having trouble acknowledging your powerlessness in it, I want all of us as a community to be able to come forward and say, here's where I need God's freedom. Because not only will it be an incredibly powerful thing for you to come forward and to receive that, but in your coming forward you're giving permission to everyone else in the room because you're saying, me too. I need a reset too. I need freedom too. And so let us be people willing to say, I can't, but God can and God will. And in saying that, we can say, Sin is no longer my master. Doesn't mean everything will be perfect, everything will be easy, but it means sin is no longer my master. I am going to take the fullness of God's freedom for me. I can't, 
but God can and God will. So if you are on the prayer team or even if you're on, you're, you are up to this morning, come on up. If you're on the prayer team and you're not on roll this morning, come on up anyways, because I, I want everyone in this room, all of us, I'm going to do it too. Be prayed for. Name the thing that has mastery over you. Acknowledge your powerlessness and, and then come and lay that at the feet of God through someone else up here in front and see what God does in that. Because I promise you will not be let down. You will not be disappointed. Bow your heads. I'm going to pray for us and then the band will come up. Jesus, thank you for your freedom. Thank you for the sacrifice that it took to give us that freedom. Thank you that you don't call us on this journey alone. But you say, I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to give you people to walk through this with you. God, thank you for a direct access to you. Thank you that we get to pray to you, but thank you also for the permission to pray for each other, to be vulnerable and honest and authentic, God. And thank you for the promise that you give us when that happens. The promise of freedom and of fullness and of community and of support, God. Let us this morning be a picture of what you want the church to be. People who are there for and with each other through the good times and the difficult times, God. Let us be able to sing out with hearts full of gratefulness, even in the midst of mess, even in the midst of pain. We love you. Amen. Let's stand up and um, come forward for prayer if you need other people to pray with you up at the front here. And as we sing and as we declare what that one thing is that has mastery over us, let's confidently and boldly put Jesus above that and above everything in our lives.
Lord, we give to you that which we cannot take care of ourselves. We give it to you. Lord, we trust in you to redeem us, to free us. sing one line from a song. Take these words in. You are here, you are here, in your presence I may hold. You are God, you are God, of all else I'm letting go.
Let's reach out. My heart will sing. No. to God 